All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12. Our message this morning is on the sixth, sixth plague, Egypt becomes a furnace. And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 9, just remember the great promise in Scripture that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you told us in your word that you are the vine and that we are the branches. And that apart from you, we can do nothing. So we ask that you would send the sap of the Holy Spirit to give us life. Father, we ask that you would prune us now that we may bear more fruit. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So thus far, we have seen five plagues unleashed on Egypt because Pharaoh had refused to let God's people go. And we arrived this morning at the sixth plague. And there's a vital lesson that we need to learn here. And it's that mankind may indeed rebel against God's law, but they cannot escape God's judgment. So humanity may reject the Lord's law, but they cannot refuse God's judgment. Think of biblical history here. Our first parents rebelled against God's command in the garden, but they could not escape his judgment of being cast out, Genesis 3, uh, 3, 24. In the antediluvian world, a man rebelled against God's commands, but they could not escape his judgment, and they were swallowed up in the flood, Genesis 7, 22 and 23. The people of Babel rebelled against God's cultural mandate, but they could not escape his judgment. He confused their language and scattered them over the earth, Genesis 11, 7. That principle is important. Mankind can rebel against God's commands, but they cannot escape his judgment. Pharaoh here has rebelled against God's commands again and again and again. He's not escaping God's judgment, however. And dear congregation, this is the God that rules and reigns in the 21st century today. 
Uh, our God is not merely the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, but he is the supreme judge who presides over every nation and over every soul. And every attempt in human history to escape his judgment has failed. Um, our God is not, like the Incredible Hulk said, a puny God. Our God is an all-powerful God, an all-seeing God, an ever-present God, a God who spreads his righteousness in the earth. And we have to ask this morning, why is he judging Egypt? If you've been with us, you know the answer. He has sworn an invincible covenant promise that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Genesis 12, 3. Judgment fell on Egypt because she cursed Yahweh's people. And so now the Lord is cursing the dragon for his people's sake. Loved ones, do you think anything has changed today? Do you think the Lord is a different God today? No, the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. The same God who judged Egypt in order to redeem his people is the same God who is judging the people in the world today. So I would encourage all of you, if you have been born again, do not let your hearts be troubled by what you see. What God is about to do in the world, we may not know. But we do know something, don't we? We do know that God has made a distinction between those who live in Goshen, those who are in Christ, and those who live in Egypt. And what that means for us in the 21st century is that we do not need to fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, God is our refuge and our strength and an ever-present help in trouble. The wicked will not escape judgment, but beloved, you and I have already escaped judgment through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what this story is about. So our outline this morning, we're going to look at the burning, we're going to look at the defiling, and then thirdly, the hardening. So let's begin with our first point. Let's look at verse 8 together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron were to take soot or ashes from this kiln, which is a furnace. And perhaps it was a furnace uh, that specifically Israel had cooked bricks in. There's heavy symbology happening in this passage. See, after Israel's exodus, Moses and the prophets again and again compared Israel's time in Egypt to being in a furnace. Deuteronomy 4.20, the Lord has taken you out and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt. 1 Kings 8.51, they are your people, your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Or Jeremiah 11.4, I brought them up out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace. So Egypt was an iron furnace. It was a place of great affliction for Israel. And so now, in a, an act of divine poetic justice, God 
turns the tables on Egypt. Pharaoh enslaved Israel to bake bricks in a furnace, and now that furnace becomes a weapon against Pharaoh. Pharaoh severely afflicted Israel, um, described as putting them in a furnace in the scriptures, and now he and the Egyptians are put into the furnace, as it were. Ashes are thrown over Egypt, symbolizing that she was being burned up. Uh, this imagery is used elsewhere in, in the scripture. God sentenced the king of Tyre, Ezekiel 28, 18. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So, speaking to the king of Tyre, I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth. This, in fact, is the last, uh, in another place, in the very last passage in the Old Testament, very last paragraphs, speaking of the latter days, Malachi 4.3, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Continuing in verse 9. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt. So now we have a combination of dust and ashes. Egypt has become dust and ashes. She is being decreated. Uh, God made man out of dust, and now Egypt was returning to that dust. Halfway through verse 9, it shall become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 10, so they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And here the symbology just intensifies. Egypt is being thrown into the furnace. Uh, boys and girls, what happens if you take a piece of chicken with heavy skin on it and stick it in a hot oven? What's going to happen to the skin? It's going to start to boil and bubble, isn't it? That's precisely what happened to these Egyptians. Their skin literally was bubbling. In fact, the root word for boil, it means to burn. One commentator says here that these ashes became a small dust falling down like dew and snow or sleet over Egypt, yet it is hot and burning, producing sore boils, burning ulcers, rising up in pustules and blisters. And this is by far the worst plague thus far. In the last plague... Egypt's economy was ruined for years to come. But these burning ulcers were a direct judgment against the Egyptians' own persons, their own bodies. Um, recall in, in the book of Job, Pastor Zach mentioned it. After he lost his children, after he lost his property, what was Satan's last attack against him? His body. Right? Satan told the Lord in Job 2, 4, and 5, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And then Satan struck Job with these boils, and it's the same Hebrew word, and they covered him from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, verse 7. 
In fact, Deuteronomy 28.35 makes mention of these exact same boils, and it says that they will cover from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Now imagine, imagine that for a moment. These hot, pus-filled ulcers and boils, not just covering your arms and your legs, but they were even erupting on the bottom of your feet. One commentator says, to have an ailment which affects even the sole of one's foot means to be incapacitated. A boil-like ailment on the sole of one's foot means that a man cannot walk or work. How do you... None of us would be here this morning if this was on our feet. Not one. How do you press the gas pedal in your car if ulcers are popping on the bottom of your foot? And this is verified in verse 11. It says that the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. Remember, this was Janus and Jambres, the New Testament tells us. These were demonic magicians, and they couldn't even stand on their feet in the presence of Moses. Egyptians lost their economy in the last plague, which was terrible, but now their skin was burning. Egypt had become a furnace. Sitting was painful. Wearing clothes was painful. Lying down was painful. No Egyptian could work or walk or even stand. And that's why this judgment is a foreshadow of the final judgment. <coughs> Psalm 1.5 says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That brings us then to our first principle this morning. Throughout history, God has foreshadowed the final judgment as a burning furnace. Throughout biblical history, God has foreshadowed the final judgment as a burning furnace. Consider just three examples of this. First, when the Lord rained sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, it says in Genesis 19.28, that the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And then in the New Testament, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.6 that Sodom was an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Mm -hmm. Secondly, one of uh, the most famous stories in the Old Testament, King Nebuchadnezzar, he cast Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into the fiery furnace, but they didn't perish. Why? Because there was a fourth figure in the furnace, the Son of God himself, who did die. The wicked guards who tried to cast them into the furnace, the furnace was so hot that they were burned up. Daniel 3.22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, is a foreshadow of the final. Those who trust Christ are saved. Those who are outside of Christ are burned up. And then finally, Jesus speaks about the burning at the end of the age. Matthew, Matthew 13, 40 through 42. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. But there is a vital difference between this fiery judgment in Egypt and the fire on the last day. We said last week, in history, the time that we're living in right now, all of God's judgments are mixed with mercy. Here, the Egyptians could still seek repentance. And many of them did. In Exodus 12:38, we read that a great multitude of Egyptians left with Israel. At the end of this Exodus, many of the Egyptians became one with the people of God. They found mercy after they experienced this judgment. But the last judgment, no mercy will be found at all. There'll be no ability for the wicked to, to change their circumstances. And I think this is the most terrible thing that we could possibly conceive. Does it bother you to think of it? I was reading and preparing this week and just reading and thinking about the terrible day. It made my heart beat faster and it put a blanket of dread on my soul. But that's just it, isn't it? If it's terrible to even think about, if it's terrible to even talk about, if this was terrible for Egypt to suffer this plague, though it was mixed with mercy, how much more terrible will it be on that day when all enjoyments are taken away, all comfort is taken away, all hope is taken away, all sleeping is taken away, all rest is taken away, it's all burned up, it's all turned to ash. Jonathan Edwards gives some imagery here. He says the soul will be, as it were, utterly crushed. The soul will sink and it will utterly sink and it will have no more strength to keep itself from sinking than a worm would have to keep itself from being crushed under the weight of a mountain. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to fear. This judgment should put the fear of God in you. But your Savior already took this judgment. You're in the land of Goshen. Verse 11 says that this terrible judgment came only upon all the Egyptians. Belonging to Jesus Christ means that we have already escaped the terrible wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 2 10 says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. John 5.24 says that we will not come into the judgment, but we have passed from death to life. But if you are outside of Christ, then look to these Egyptians. Look to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, to those guards at Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. All of these judgments are warnings from heaven. Dear unbelieving friend, what do you think America is experiencing right now? And when, when I say that, I, I don't pretend to know what's going to happen next. I'm not a prophet, but I do know 
I do know this, that as God was pouring out his terrible judgments on Egypt, it was because he was preparing a wonderful deliverance for Israel. And unless you are in Goshen, you will perish. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You've done that business with God. That's our first point. Throughout history, God has foreshadowed the final judgment as a burning furnace. Let's look at the defiling next. And there's another layer of symbology in our passage. These ashes that Moses and Aaron cast over the land, they defiled every Egyptian. It wasn't just a painful thing. It was a defilement. They were covered with boils. What kind of a disease was this? Commentators uh, speculate a lot, but we do know that this same Hebrew word for boils is used in connection with leprosy in Leviticus 13, 18 through 20. We read there, if there is in the skin of one's body a boil and it heals and in the place of the boil there comes a white swelling or a reddish white spot, then it shall be shown to the priest and the priest shall look and if it appears deeper than the skin and its hairs turn white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease that is broken out in the boil. The Egyptians uh, became not only physically um, disgusting in this plague, can you imagine just even looking at them, but they became religiously unclean. And I, I'm not applying Leviticus to them, this was a category that happened with much of the ancient Eastern religions, including the Egyptians. They held to ceremonial uh, cleanness. One author said that clean, uh, cleanliness was paramount in the Egyptian society. This plague pronounced the people unclean. But these boils not only defiled the Egyptians, they defied the Egyptian gods. Remember that every one of these plagues was an attack against a particular Egyptian god. Numbers 33.4 tells us that the judgments were against Egypt's gods. This plague was against the goddess Sekhmet. According to an Egyptian museum, Sekhmet was the goddess of the hot desert sun, plague, chaos, war, and healing. She had the body of a woman with a lion head wearing a sun disc. When she was in a calmer state, uh, this is for all you who love cats, when she was in a calmer state, she would take the form of a household cat goddess, Bastet. That's cute, isn't it? Little household cat god running around. The Egyptians believed she could avert plague and cure disease. She was the patron of physicians and healers. In order to stay on her good side, they offered her food and drink, played music for her, burned incense. They would whisper their prayers into the ears of cat mummies. I didn't even know they mummified cats. And offer them to Sekhmet. Cat mummies. 
But this little kitty cat God couldn't heal the Egyptians. And no matter how many prayers they offered to these cat mummies, they all failed. They were dealing with the lion of the tribe of Judah. And as a result, the entire nation of Egypt was not only sick, but they were defiled religiously. Their religious worship had to come to a standstill because to worship their gods with these boils would have been sacrilege. The Levitical law later on reflects a similar prohibition. To have this disease would be required to be put outside of the camp. Leviticus 13, 46, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So Egypt as a whole was put outside of the camp. And that brings us then to our second principle. God's ordinary way of mercy is to defile a people before he destroys that people. God's ordinary way of mercy is to defile a people before he destroys that people. This plague of boils became a pattern. Not the boils themselves, but that God afflicts bodies. It became a pattern with a disobedient people from here forward in Scripture. Uh, consider two examples. First, consider that this very plague was threatened against Israel if they broke the covenant. In Deuteronomy 28, 27, it says, The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors and scabs and itch, of which you cannot be healed. Isn't that interesting? That the sixth plague became a proverb in Israel's history. You disobey me, you'll be struck with this same plague. The second example is that this plague was poured out on the people in Revelation. Revelation 16, 10 through 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. Now regardless of whether you believe this has already been fulfilled or, or it's waiting to be fulfilled, the point remains that the pattern God established in this plague runs from Exodus all the way to Revelation. The point is not the boils in particular, but God defiling a people's health because of their rebellion. We have to understand this plague then from two aspects. First, we have to understand that this was a national punishment. We read three times in our text. Twice in verse 9, this fell on the land of Egypt. And then once in verse 11, it came upon all the Egyptians. Friends, the, the book of Exodus is an amazing book because it teaches us how God deals with nations. As one author has said, we fail to have an understanding of the plagues of Egypt if we do not see them as typifying God's judgment on his enemies in every era. These are not just stories. They are patterns of how God operates in every era in world history. And consequently, this defiling that we see in our own nation right now, I'm not talking about boils, 
talking about more nefarious types of defiling. It's both a judgment and a mercy. It, Egypt had more time. God didn't destroy them yet. We're still here, which means that we still have time. But there's only one solution, that we as a nation must turn back to the Lord. There's also another pattern in Scripture that when nations turn back and repent to the Lord, God lifts his judgment. Think of uh, the people of Nineveh, Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did, how they turned back from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it to them. There's still hope if America repents. That's the first aspect of this plague. We have to see it as a national punishment. However, this is the second aspect. This defilement was also very, very personal. Each Egyptian was personally defiled. You see, loved ones, this is a story about all of humanity. How each and every one of us were born defiled and unclean. Children, boys and girls, Egypt could not get rid of these boils. We used to install tile for a living and we would work with this epoxy glue and we had to wear gloves when we used it because if we didn't, it would get on our skin and you could not get it off. It stained your skin. These Egyptians were stained with these boils. And if it was the same boils that were threatened in Deuteronomy, they were incurable, Deuteronomy says. And the connection to us as persons is that you and I can't make ourselves clean. We can't heal ourselves. And what we as human beings tend to do to make ourselves feel better about this problem is we start to compare our boils to the boils of other people. And children, I know that you do this because every human being does this. You tend to look at other boys and girls and you think, well, my sins aren't as bad as theirs. But that doesn't matter in the least point is, is that you're still infected. You're still sick. You're still defiled. You're still unclean. And just as that little kitty cat God of the Egyptians couldn't cure them, so nothing on this earth can cure you. Nothing. And this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such incredibly good news. Do you know where Jesus was crucified at? Yes, he was crucified on a cross. But he was crucified outside of the city, outside of the camp. Hebrews 13, 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Why did Jesus have to go outside the city? Because our sin defiled him. The Egyptians were disgusting and they were defiled, but Jesus Christ became far worse than these Egyptians when our sin was placed upon him. We transmitted to Jesus the most loathsome, disgusting to, to disease uh, that was far worse 
than these boils ever were. Jesus had absorbed into his body and into his soul all of our vileness. Think about just one day when you have an epiphany of how disgusting and sinful and loathsome you are. When you have like that real sight of yourself in the mirror where you're not playing games anymore and you see how bad you are. All of that. The lust, the adultery, the lying, the murder, the blasphemy, the idolatry, all of those things were placed on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became the most unclean being that ever walked the earth. And the only way to get rid of that vileness was for him to be executed. And that's what the cross of Christ was. The removal of all of our uncleanliness through execution. Death is the only thing that removes defilement. Death. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. And what that resurrection means is that you and I can never be unclean again. At the cross, we transmitted our disease of sin to Jesus. But at his resurrection, he transmitted, he imputed his righteousness to us. And it's all summed up perfectly in one verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us. He became vile and unclean at the, resurrect, at the crucifixion. And then at the resurrection, we became the righteousness of Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. Not only has our incurable plague been removed, but because we have the righteousness of Christ, we will never be unclean again. You ever just tell yourself that? You look in the mirror and and you say, self, I'm as righteous as Jesus Christ is. That's what it means to have imputation. You're not resting on your own robes of righteousness as you stand before the Father. That God gave you the perfectly spotless, whiteless robes of the Savior. And you are just as righteous as Jesus. Never to be unclean again. Let's look finally at the hardening. In spite of everything that Pharaoh has seen, he still does not repent. If this is not a proof of of Calvinism, of the Reformed faith, I don't know what is. Maybe as a little tangent. Do we think that we're going to win sinners to Christ if we just have you know, a smoke machine out front and, and disco ball lights and really great coffee? And we're really super winsome in our speech. Is that going to win lost sinners to Christ? Well, if you could produce a river of blood and frogs and gnats and still not win a sinner to Christ, then I'm pretty sure that means it must be an act of God. Pharaoh still doesn't repent, but we do see something new here. Look at verse 12. 
But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Recall a few sermons ago that there are, are, are three ways that the heart is hardened towards God. First, there is a natural hardness of heart that every sinner has since the fall. Every human being is born, every sinful human being is born with a naturally hard heart towards God, Ezekiel eleven nineteen. Secondly, there is a voluntary hardness. Our hearts become harder when we willingly reject the counsel of God, Psalm 95, 7, and 8. But then thirdly, there is a judicial hardness, which is an act of God hardening the heart as a judgment for the sinner refusing to repent. That's what's happening here. Now we know at near the beginning of this book that God told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart before he even confronted Moses. He told him in Exodus 4.21, Exodus 7.23. But we actually haven't seen this yet in the previous plagues. We've seen Pharaoh's natural hardness in Exodus 7.13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We've seen Pharaoh's voluntarily hardening his heart in Exodus 8.15. But when, God, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen. So for the first five plagues, we've seen a natural hardness and we've seen a voluntary hardness. And God patiently bore with Pharaoh again and again his blasphemy, his insults, and his lies again and again. And now God judicially hardens. Pharaoh's heart for his great sin. Pharaoh rejected the Lord's commands and he cannot escape the Lord's judgment. That brings us then to our third principle. When a people persists in sin, God justly hardens their heart, handing them over to more judgment. God justly hands the impenitent sinner over to more judgment by hardening his heart. And this is the fearful doctrine that the Apostle Paul opens up the book of Romans with. His argument is that though all mankind know God, they refuse to honor him and give thanks to him. And therefore, three times in verses 24, 26, and 28, we read that God gave them up. God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to the depravity of their wills, to a reprobate mind. That Greek word there for giving them up, it's picturesque of a criminal be, being delivered over to a prison. God delivered them over to a prison of hardness. But this prison here is, it's more sin. It's more judgment. See, when God judicially hardens a sinner, he gives them fully over to their sin. And this is in spite of the sin destroying their lives. This is why the book of Ecclesiastes calls sin insanity. Because it is not sane to continue to do the very thing that's destroying you. So to flesh this out, imagine if God were to harden an adulterer in his sin. What would that look like? It would look like that the adulterer gives himself over more and more to the adultery, even though... It's destroying all of his relationships and destroying his body. God 
hardened Pharaoh's heart, and now Pharaoh is running headlong into his own destruction. Now, dear congregation, here's the challenge this morning. This is the type of world that we live in. We have been called to preach the gospel to these type of people. Not only to those who have naturally hard hearts, but to those who have been judicially hardened by God. Romans 1 is not talking about some imaginary world. Go read Romans 1 again and look at the list of sins that follows God handing them over to their hearts. And you'll see a list of the same types of people that we live in with the world today. How do we preach to a people who have been given over to this judgment? How do we do that? Um, certainly, you can hear the objection from one of your skeptic friends, or maybe you can channel your inner skeptic, and, and they say something like this, how can I repent? If God has hardened Pharaoh's heart, if he has hardened my heart, then there is nothing I can do. And this is where you need to say, exactly. There's nothing you can do. This is, this is why Christians are seen as so contradictory. We, we tell sinners that they must repent and believe the gospel, but they can't do it on their own strength. They must repent and believe the gospel Because if they don't, they'll be damned. Dear friends, it's it's this text that helps us to see the miracle of conversion. One of the reasons the church enters into seasons of weakness or lukewarmness is because it starts to treat conversion like something that is able for a man to do. A man, can, a man can accomplish this himself. When we start to slip into that thinking, the church becomes weak. That is not how the New Testament talks about conversion. Think about how the New Testament describes the unconverted man. The unconverted man is blind. He cannot make himself see. The unconverted man is lost. He cannot find himself. The unconverted man is dead in sin. He cannot make himself alive. See, the unconverted man, he must hear how desperate his condition is. He must hear that he is without hope and that he is without God in the world. All of those who are outside of Goshen have no hope. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon spoke to the unconverted in his day. He says this. When you shall feel that you are powerless, then we shall have hope for you. For then you will leave yourself in the hands of him who can do all things. When self-strength is gone, God's strength will come. 
I do not want to rouse your activity, you unconverted people. I want to rouse you to the conviction that you are lost. And I pray that God the Holy Spirit will convince you. So back to that skeptic that says, how can I repent? If God is hard in my heart, then there is nothing that I can do. And you answer, you're right. There's nothing that you can do. There's no amount of activity, no amount of works, no amount of well-wishing that can make you right with God. Only the power of God can transform you. Only God can take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Only God can give sight to your blind eyes. Only God can find your lost soul. Only God can raise you from the dead. You can do nothing. Cry out to him. Throw yourself on the seed of mercy that he might do this for you. That's how we're to preach the gospel to the lost. They need to hear that their condition could not be more desperate. They need to hear that their only hope, their only comfort in life and death is if the Lord saves them. Outside of that, there is nothing but damnation. Their congregation, when God was pouring out this terrible judgment on Egypt, it was because he was preparing a wonderful deliverance for Israel. These plagues are a vindication of his promise. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. It's no wonder why, uh, why David wrote Psalm 2 hundreds of years later. I wonder if David had Pharaoh in mind when he wrote this. Listen to the words very carefully. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples meditate on a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Do you know who that king is? Christ. And this is what Christ says. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in no one can defeat the Lord. 
That was true in Pharaoh's day. And that is true in our day as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these glimpses of your judgment and your deliverance in biblical history. And Lord, we do lift up the lost, not only in this city, but in our nation. Lord, that you would open up their eyes, that you would give them sight, that you would take out their heart of stone, that you would give them a heart of flesh, that multitudes would turn back to the Lord, that they would repent of their sins, that they would see that they are defiled and unclean and that they have no hope apart from you. Lord, raise up your church that we might be gospel preachers, that we might be those who bring good news to those who are lost. We desire, Lord, to see your work in our day, just as you worked in Moses' day. Bring revival. Bring judgment. Bring mercy. For we ask these things in Jesus' name.